first through third John. And this morning, the idea is being marked by love. And, and I've mentioned this before, and this is a, an interesting part of first through third John. John is not an outline writer. He is uh, more of a musical uh, com- composition type writing. So we have talked about love before. We talk about uh, different components, sin, love. Those things are repeated themes, just like you would see in a song. And so we're coming now back to love again. And, and he's trying to make sure we see something. And I'm going to say this multiple times and at the end, is that a believer is to be marked uh, by love. Now, I was thinking of an introduction and I was thinking of, of babies. There's been a few babies born in the church. And, and whenever I see a baby Uh, One of the first questions I get asked from those who have not seen the baby yet is, who does the baby look like? I have no idea ever about which parent or family member they resemble. And I typically respond this way. They look like a baby. Which means I see a baby Yoda or an alien from Mars. That's, That's how I see this. And people always used to tell me before I had kids, I have five kids now, so there's no need to tell me anymore. But people told me before I had kids, they said, Kenny, when you see your own child, you're going to think he or she is beautiful. And I still, this is a vivid, my memories fade in a lot of things. Uh, I do remember when Heather told me she was pregnant with Clayton. That's the only one I remember because we had a baby Avery at the time and she was pregnant with yet another kid. And I was like, oh no, I sat down and then we called her mom just to make sure someone else was shocked. Uh, But I still remember one other thought when Landon was born. Um, And I remember people told you, when you see your kid, you're going to think, oh, this is so beautiful. Um, I remember my thoughts on seeing my firstborn child seconds after he was born, which, by the way, let's be honest, is never any person's shining moment in life. Um, And this is the first thought that hit my brain. I said, that is a homely looking thing. (laughs) I was was like, wow. And I thought to myself, I'm going to love him anyway. That was literally... What, what popped through my brain, I just want you to know I'm not a good person and I recognize that ahead of time. But now all the swelling goes down on his face and he gets cleaned, which the nurse made me clean him first. And, and he, he was, obviously my analysis of his looks changed. But when I first saw him, I just want you to know I'm very consistent. I was like, wow, that is an alien from Mars. And I recognize right out the bat that I'm a horrible person and clearly not normal, which a lot of you knew that. Uh, but when it, because when it comes to recognizing and identifying babies, every person I ever talk to when seeing a baby returns with these things, they see the dad's chin, the mother's eyes, the granddad's nose, and the list goes on and on. And it, the fact is, every normal person, except for me, um, can identify characteristics in a baby. They look at a baby and they see family characteristics. They see who this child belongs to. And that's a reality that is true of believers as well. We have certain characteristics that mark us distinctly as belonging to a certain family, which is God's family. And one of those key markers is love. And so when I say marked by love and and we emphasize this, John has done this through his whole book, weaving it in. We're going to have more conversation about love later on uh, in, in the book. But he's trying to make sure Christians realize something, that this is a distinctive feature of who we are. Uh, Francis Schaeffer in his book, The Mark of the Christian, writes this, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, even had special haircuts. 
Of course, there is nothing wrong with any of this if one feels it is his calling, but there is a much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. What is this mark? Well, if you look at the close of his ministry, Jesus looks forward to his death on the cross, the open tomb and the ascension. Knowing that he's about to leave, Jesus prepares his disciples for what is to come. It is here that he makes clear what will be the distinguishing mark of the Christian. John 13, 33 through 35. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Schaefer continues, this passage reveals the mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian, not just in one era or in one locality, but at all times and all places until Jesus returns. And I hope this rests in, if you get nothing else out of the message this morning, this is the concept that's coming in. We are to be marked by love. It is to be a characteristic that every Christian carries with them. It is supposed to be the obvious chin, nose, resemblance to our Savior that we're to have. And John is writing now, remember, John is writing to churches that are combating a lot of false teaching. And so as you read his book, one, it's teaching us what we need to do as believers, some basic foundational principles, but the context of his writing is, is resistance or a pushback against false teaching. See, people were teaching at this time that loving others does not matter, or put another way, a numb faith does not act, and that's okay. So John is facing, not only he had false doctrine, the Gnostics and all those people pushing back with their certain teaching, but there was a distance from the church. These people were in the church saying, it's not important that you love the church. It's not important that you serve the church. It's not important that you, and you fill in the blank, <laughs> because they were all about their experience. They were all about their self or their self-centeredness or their selfishness. And so as John is laying out what a, what a Christian looks like, what the church is supposed to resemble, he's also pushing back against people who are saying loving others doesn't matter. And what he's saying emphatically is that it does matter. And he makes it clear that we've always been commanded to actively love our fellow believers, to love the church. Look at verse 11. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that ye should love one another. John was used by the Holy Spirit to write the Gospel of John. And there he records the words of Christ who says, how do people know that you're a believer? How are they going to know that you believe? By how you love the church. It's very specific about the Direction doesn't mean we don't love others, but he's very specific. They're going to know you're a believer by the love you display to the church. And John, many years later, writing to the churches, is saying the same thing. You've known this from the beginning, that you should love one another. Christians are to be marked by love, and John wants them to be clear about what love is and what love is not. And he does so in this, this paragraph or this portion of his letter by giving us two examples. One is Christ, who exemplifies 
perfect love and what our love is centered in. And the other person is Cain, who ultimately exemplifies hate, what love is not. And we're going to begin this morning with what love is not. That's verses 12 to 15. Of course, 11 is the command. From the beginning, you've known this command that we should love one another. This is what we know. This isn't new. This isn't fresh on the marketplace. I'm not writing this as some kind of new teaching. He's saying you've known that you're supposed to love one another. And then he gives his two examples, Cain and Christ. He says, now, how do you love one another? And he's saying, this is what love is not, not as Cain. Don't love like Cain would love, who was of that wicked one, speaking of Satan, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And as we dive into this, I want to touch on this briefly. You look at this idea, and and he's saying that love is a litmus test. If you find love in your heart to the brethren, to the church, it, it indicates who you are. And we'll talk more about this. It doesn't make you who you are. It is an is a fruit of who you are. You will love the church because you are redeemed. You are not redeemed because you love the church. And that's an important distinction to make, and we'll make some other ones as we go along. But what is love not? And John goes all the way back to the beginning of time and shares the story of Cain, which ends with the first murder. You see, Abel and Cain were brothers, and each had their area of specialty. Abel kept the flocks, and Cain grew the crops. Well, when it came time to bring sacrifices to God, Cain brought what he had grown. And I know we could feel sorry for Cain. We're saying, hey, Cain's giving what he grew and and Abel's giving what he took care of. And the interesting thing is, is Scripture doesn't delve into what the sacrifice is, but delves into the heart of the person offering the sacrifice. And here's the reality. Cain approached God, but with the wrong disposition in self-styled religion and lacking any real worship of God. He comes to God on his terms, his way, and really not worshiping God at all. Abel brought what he raised, a lamb, with the right disposition in God-styled religion and filled with worship toward God. God did not accept Cain's sacrifice, but he did accept Abel's. That infuriated Cain which resulted in him murdering Abel in the field. And I want you to understand, you're, you're, you're the first family. This is your brother. You're offering a sacrifice. And God has made it crystal clear that your sacrifice is not good enough, and your brother's is. And your response is anger. Nothing communicates more that he had approached God with the wrong attitude than when God instructs him on what he should do, his response is anger. 
You ever met people who think they're giving to God what they, that God wants, and when they find out that that's not what God wants, their response is to say God is a jealous God or arrogant God or a difficult God or a hard God, and they respond against God? That's what Cain's doing, which indicates that he approached God from the wrong perspective. And what he does is he results in him murdering Abel. He slew him, it says in Genesis 4.8. By the way, that word slew him... <coughs> is a translation of a very violent type of death. As one writer notes, it's like Cain slit his brother's throat, thus defiantly making him his replacement sacrifice. You won't take my sacrifice, then I will rise up and kill my brother and let that be my sacrifice. It's almost, this is the arrogance that's coming off of Cain. And the sad reality and cause of Cain's emotion is that he was self-centered. He was consumed with himself, which biblical love will never be. Thus, John's throwing it up. Don't be like Cain, who was consumed with himself. Why is Cain angry? Because God rejected his sacrifice done with the wrong heart and the wrong disposition, the wrong type of, of religion, and accepted someone who had done it right. And his hatred is poured out on the one who did it right because it convicts him. See, Cain approached God on Cain's terms which means he worshiped himself. We need to understand that when we come to God on our terms, we say, God, I will come to you. I will respond in this way. I will do this my way. You're not worshiping God at all. You are worshiping yourself because you set the rules. And God confronted him about it. God rejected his offering. Abel approached God on God's term, really worshiping God and was accepted. Cain sees that and because he hated righteousness so much, he murdered his own brother because Abel doing right rebuked him. It confronted him. See, self-centered love hates being confronted. It hates it. It doesn't like the confrontation of righteousness. It doesn't like to see things being done right. Thus, John states in verse 13, marvel not, if the world hates you, don't be surprised, he says. Don't be surprised by the fact that the world can't stand you. Not because you're an obnoxious person, but because you represent righteousness and the world hates it. Because when you serve God, when Abel comes to God and he does what God told him to do with the right attitude, Cain, who has his gift rejected because he approached God with his own attitude and in self-worship, now looks at Abel and he says, I can't believe you worship God, God way. And you make me feel bad about my self-worship. You make me feel bad about my autonomy, which means I do what I want. I'm the authority in my life. You confront my choice. You confront my action. Not because Abel said to Cain, ha ha, you weren't accepted. You're a loser and I'm a winner. That's not what happened. It's Cain is sitting here and he's upset that Abel did things the way God wanted to. Because self-centered love, which ultimately is hate, absolutely despises being convicted. Do you know what God, and this is what I find fascinating, before Cain ever murders Abel, God approaches Cain and speaks to him. He tells Cain this. He says, sin lieth at the door. He literally goes to Cain and said, sin is right there and it wants you. Its desire is for you. It wants you to give over or give into this emotion that you feel. Don't repent. 
is what sin is saying, but react in kind. God said, sin wants you, but you should rule over it. God told Cain, there's no reason why you can't win. It doesn't have to win over you. Well, we know the story, right? We know that Cain did not rule over sin. And why? Because he acted from the same framework as Satan. He acted from his sinful nature and biblical love does not have Satan and sin as its source. That's why the world can never love as God wants it to love. You can look at people and say they look loving. They appear to be doing good. They appear to be a nice person. You ever had that? And I see people around the world and I think they don't know Christ, but man, they seem nicer than people in church. And we get duped into thinking they're good people because they act in an external way. And what is important to realize is the world without Christ can never display biblical love. It's not possible for them to do it because they don't have Christ. Uh, Here in Cain's example, it says he was of that wicked one, meaning this, he's connected to Satan in in the sense that he has a determined, aggressive, and fervent evil that actively opposes what is good. It's a a malignant sinfulness that pulls other down into the rune. Why did Cain have to kill Abel? What did Abel do to Cain? All Abel did was do right. And Cain said, I have to destroy what's right. I have to get rid of him. He couldn't even let it be. You know, some people say, you just do your thing and I'll do my thing. You live your life, I'll live my life. The world's lying when it says that. It's never okay with you doing what's right. It's never okay with you serving God. It's never okay with you living for Christ. Watch how they respond in the end. They always want to blame Christians for interfering, but the world cannot stand to have somebody doing what's right. And that's what Cain exemplifies. He shows us this oppressive, aggressive, anti-right mentality. It's a connection that does not and cannot biblically love. Instead, it can only hate, which makes one a murderer. What does John write? Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. By the way, Christ taught that. You had the Pharisees with all their actions and all their external things saying, I do this and I do that. I wear nicer robes. I don't get on the streets where the lepers are. I don't talk to this person. I don't associate with that person. I don't walk too far on the Sabbath. I have my own rules to get around, but either way, I don't break any of the outside rules. And, and God confronted them. Christ, when he's teaching, confronted them. Sermon on the Mount said, well, if you hate somebody, you're a murderer. John reiterates that you're a murderer, which brings it all back to being under Satan's realm. And that's what John is trying to show the church. You're to be marked by love and that love does not look like the world looks. It doesn't resemble worldly love. John 8, 44 states this, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of the father ye will do. In other words, you're going to do exactly what Satan does because you're just working from the same premise as Satan is. Me, pride, self-centeredness. He says this, He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there was no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Just in case you think Jesus was all sugar-coated messages, this is what he's saying to people who think they're the ruling religious elite. And he says, your father is the devil and you're a big liar and you're a murderer. And what John is trying to do is connect us to this. He's trying to help us see something because here's the reality. Can a murderer be saved? Of course they can. 
And so we have to be careful that we don't misapply this. What he's saying is this, if your heart is filled like that, it has no eternal life in it. If the whole premise of your existence, if you look in and you, you see only worldly love, worldly affections, this kind of mentality, then you have no eternal life in it. And what John wants us to know is that we need to understand and not be surprised that the world hates and ultimately wants to murder those who belong to Christ. He's making sure they realize the world, that's unbelievers, function from the premise of sin. Sin is their, their basis, and they will, will hate righteousness and holiness. Just like they murdered Christ, they're going to want to murder you. Now, we happen to live in a nation that has protection for us, that has freedoms that are not available around the world. And so we should be grateful for that, that is a gift from God in your life to be here versus an expectation. What is the expectation for the church? That the world will hate it and want to get rid of it. We see some of that around the world as we see more that goes on. But the fact is the world wants to murder what is Christ's. And even, I put in presence, even when the unbelieving world does display love, it is ultimately self-centered, which cannot be a biblical love. And and is done to pacify their conscience, emotions, or bring glory to themselves. You watch someone who is wealthy, and they publicly give all these gifts, and you know about it. Why do they tell everyone they gave all their gifts? Because they want glory to themselves. They want to pacify their conscience. They want to prove to people that they are a good person. And so all those fabulously wealthy people that give so much and blow the trumpet about it all are people who are giving out of a self-centered interest. That's not love. That's ultimately, and that's what John's trying to show you, it's ultimately hate because their whole life is consumed in themselves. The fact is, the natural reaction of the world under the domain of the devil and sin is to hate what is holy, righteous, and good. Why? Because their father, the devil, hates what is holy, righteous, and good. The premise of self-pride, self-centeredness rises up. And John wants the church to be discerning of what love is not, but also to be diligent to not replicate what the world does. We are not to act in kind. I know that for me, sometimes it rises up when people are nasty. I'm like, well, okay, you want to be nasty? Then I'd like to be nasty back. And John wants them to understand, don't act as Cain act. Don't represent what love is not. Because when our behavior replicates the world's behavior when it comes to love, we obscure the message we're called to bring, a message of love and eternal life. So while we need to know what love is not, it is also crucial to understand what love is. And that's verses 16 through 18. Now our focus is shifting. We go from Cain to looking to Christ. Verse 16, hereby perceive we the love of God. Here's how we know what the love of God is. So John brings us all the way back, and I want you to realize that he's taking you all the way back to the cross, which is the central component of Christian love. You cannot show biblical love without it being grounded and powered by the cross. And so he goes on, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us, and now he makes an application, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelt the love of God in him? And now he goes really practical to 17. He asks a really 
confronting type of question. Christ died for the church and you should die for the church. And most people say, I'm willing to die for the church. And then he says, okay, good. Are you willing to help the church move? Are you willing to help the church care for their sick? Are you willing to help this person in need? Are you willing to... And now suddenly it's getting into my everyday life. And that's what John is doing to the church saying, oh, but that means you need to do all these other things as well. And then 18, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. What you look at here is he shifts the focus from a look at Cain, the first murderer, to the only begotten son who died for us to give us life. And he is now the perfect picture of biblical love and who we are to copy. Who should you be like? Not Cain, which is a drastic illustration over here, but you need to be like Christ. So when we speak of biblical love, it is a redemptive style of love. It is redemptive. It's bigger than us and more than us. And I would say this, and I'm trying to capture the essence of what this love looks like. It's bigger than the circumstances. And we, we get consumed in our life and we're saying, I'm giving too much. I'm helping too much. And the whole point of biblical love and being marked by love is that we don't evaluate our love against just the circumstances of today. But instead, it's always linked to what Christ has done. Because biblical love ties to Christ's redemptive sacrifice on the cross for us. Biblical love is linked to the cross every single time. It's never distant. It'll all fall apart. If you're doing and serving the church out of your own capacity of love, at some point you're going to fail or you're going to use up your love. Some of us faster than others. But when it is a redemptive love for the church, when it's linked to what Christ has done, well, then that love lasts and goes. And and what he's doing, he clarifies who is the standard of Christian love, and it's Jesus. It is never another individual. It's not like, well, Jim Bob, he served the church so much that I need to make sure I serve the church so much. It's not linked to what Kenny does or what Brian does or what Cody does or what Bob does as none of that is related to who is the standard of Christian love. The standard is Christ. Our love is always centered and motivated because of his great love toward us and sacrifice for us. Why do you help the church in the day to day? Because Christ died on the cross for your sins. Why do you help this person move? Because Christ died on the cross for the sins. Why do you visit people in the hospital? Because Christ died on the cross for our sins. And you might say, well, Kenny, you're, you're making it too simple. You're, you're, you're bring, that's not me. That's what John did. He says, look, this is the picture of love. This is the standard. And everything you do is motivated from that standard. It answers the question of how far biblical love should go. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Who should you be willing to die for? The church. The same people that Christ died for. He's asking of us the same response that he was willing to give. Uh, We are to do and care as much as Christ does and did for the church. Now, what happens? We tend to fixate on that ultimate sacrifice of dying for the church, which the majority of us will not be called upon to do. John, though, brings the topic of biblical love to a very practical application. He lets us see that Christian love is to be real. It is redemptive. So here is the idea of what it's based in and and what it's fixated on, what it's motivated by. 
Our love for the church, our actions that we're going to take must be linked to the cross at all times. That's biblical love. But John says, get real about love. MacArthur notes this, the proof that one has genuine love and is a child of God rests not in sentiments, but in deeds. In other words, it's not how you feel about somebody. It's what you do for somebody. And it's not to negate motive. Your motive is the cross. Not, I like the way this person smells, dress, acts. They seem to need help. I feel connected to them. I don't. See, that's not the bearing. That's not the driving motivation. You're always motivated by the cross. But it's seen in what you do, not what you necessarily feel or say. Galatians 6.10 says this, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. All people, what we are bearers of good. We're supposed to be serving our church and community. And then he narrows it down, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. In other words, do good to all, but definitely don't neglect the church. Because remember, by this, men, humankind will know who we are. They'll know we're Christians by our love displayed to the church. Why is this? It shows who we really are. Verse 17 is the, is the question that he's trying to confront the mind of the church with. Someone has this world's good and sees that his brother has need and then closes up his bowels of compassion, which, by the way, in Scripture, bowels is actually where the emotions were, head, heart, and head tie together. It's mind. So your bowels talk about your emotions. In other words, you see someone in need in the church, in your community, where God has placed you, and you emotionally are dead to that, he says, and, and you don't act upon it. Then he asks a question, how does the love of God dwell in you? How can Christ die for the church, but you can't help the church or help that individual? And by the way, when I say the word church, I'm talking about people, not building chairs, etc. He says, so he confronts us on, it shows who we really are, uh, but it doesn't make us who we are. And that's important to clarify. Instead, it reveals the true nature of our hearts. One preacher stated it this way, our love for one another is the flower and fruit that indicates eternal life is at the root. If you are redeemed, then you will bear the fruit or flower of love for the church. You don't bear the fruit and flower and then have the root. The root is first. And so he's, he's showing us that our love should be real, motivated by the cross, exemplified in everyday life. James 2, 15 through 17 states this, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. And, and I just want you to see Paul writing, John writing, James writing, and all of it deals with actions stepping forward. It's not a socialism. It's talking about helping people in real need that, that comes up. And, and we know real need, don't we? That's not someone telling us to buy them a new car. This is someone who needs you to drive them somewhere. You see, when we see the church in need, we're supposed to respond, motivated by the cross and responding to that need. Uh, don't miss this because God is serious about real biblical love displayed in real life circumstances. His expectation is that we see what we have and are capable of, 
and apply that to those truly in need. I want to be careful. We live in a time in the world where everyone's telling you to give everything away and that everyone deserves what you have. And so we have to remove from our mind the politics of the day and recognize as we come in as the church and see God is serious about you looking at what you've been given, your gift set, the the material blessings he's bestowed upon you. Hopefully as a believer, you recognize that what you have has been given as a blessing from God. It's easy to become very confident in ourselves. Well, I'm smarter than the next guy or I'm harder working. And, And that May be true, but recognize that your gift of intellect and gift of hard work comes from God. And as he's blessed you and made you capable, are you now seeing that as something to be used to be a blessing to the people Christ died to redeem? And again, we go right back to the cross. What do we see our giftedness in? It's expressed towards the people whom God redeemed on the cross. The cross is our motivator, but we are supposed to be diligent about what we have, what we're capable of. It's not always money and things. God may give you a spirit that is intuitive, that can see need or hurt in someone's life. And and so you should act on that. You should see and encourage and be a blessing. In other words, we're, we're expected to evaluate both ourselves and the circumstances of people's lives, and act accordingly. I put here, it doesn't happen by accident. It never happens by accident. Instead, John makes clear that it takes action. And this is verse 18. And here he's clearly petitioning in his clothes. My little children, he says. He's he's zeroing in. My little children, church. And remember, John could do this. He was very old. And so everyone was a child to him, right? It doesn't matter if they were 70, they're still a child because he's, he's in his 90s here coming in. Do this. I don't know if you've ever had this. You've headed off to a social gathering, uh, maybe to see extended family, and, and you sit the kids down and you run through how you want them to respond. Have you ever done that? If someone talks to you, talk back. Don't act like the feral dog you usually act like, but literally respond to our relatives. Not that we're trying to show off. It's just we don't want them to to think that this is the first time you've gotten out of the house uh, in a long, long time. And so you sit them down. This is John's heart. He's almost sitting the church down and saying, look, little children, this is what you need to do. John wants the church to be more than chatter and more than talk. In essence, he's saying to the church, put your money where your mouth is. Now let me replace money. Put your deeds where your mouth is. Put your love where your mouth is. You're going to talk about doing all this thing. You're going to talk about dying for the church. Then you go ahead and act today on that. Well, Kenny, I can't die today for that. No, but you can definitely serve in the church. You can care. You can connect. We are marked by love and that love needs to be real and really taking place in the everyday of life. John is zeroing in, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue. In other words, he's saying, don't love in creed. We will die for the church. That is our creed. That is our motto. We will do it. Don't be someone who talks about loving. Oh, I would love to help that person. I, w- I could definitely help. And then when it comes time to help, it's like, where is, where is this person who's been talking? He says, don't do that. And he gets really specific here. He says, I don't want you to be creed 
oriented or talking oriented, but I actually want you to do something, bet it in deed and in truth. Do it through the truth of the gospel and do it in action, not in conversation. We are marked by love and that love needs to be real and really taking place in the everyday of life. The standard of biblical love is Jesus Christ and his redemptive work on the cross. He laid down his life because he loves us. We are called to the same redemptive purpose and depth as we live out being his church. As we function as his church, we are supposed to be willing to sacrifice like our Savior did. A true believer will love, and that love will take place in real time and in real life. You can't love tomorrow. You can love today. You can't love with a circumstance in Africa. You can love with a circumstance in Culpeper. Real time, real life. So if you look at your life, do you see an active Christian love? Now, believers, we are marked by love. We are called to love one another, but it's not any type of love. As one writer notes, God cares both about our motives and our actions. I'm going to remind us again, love based upon you is not biblical love. Love motivated by the cross is the love that God has called all of his children to display. So to help us grasp what love is, John gave us these two clear examples. Don't love as Cain, he says, because all he displayed was self-centered interests driven by sinful or satanic desires. But do love as Christ loved. Redemptively, we love others while looking at the cross, which is the how and why of our love. How do you love people? Through the cross. Why do you love people? Because of the cross. It's all centered in Christ and the cross, and that redemptive type love unfolds in everyday real life. It takes place in the nitty-gritty details of existing here on earth. And I know all of us have had days where we feel like we're existing, and that's exactly where our love is supposed to unfold. I want to close this morning with a statement by John Stott summarizing this, this passage. He notes this, Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church, whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. So ask yourself, which of these characteristics do I display? Is it love, biblical love, or is it hate, which is anything that is not biblical love. Because as Aiken states, love and hate are moral, spiritual opposites. Both cannot reside at the same time in the same heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank for this opportunity we have to come together to dive back into 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and see uh, your instructions for the church. Here is not a detailed class or an outline, but instead John writes as the elder speaking to the church, all of whom look like his little children. And he cares deeply for the church. He's concerned about how false teaching combats the truth. And here he writes in, in, a, in a very poetic, musical way, going through what the church should look like and emphasizing in this portion the idea of love and making sure we recognize that we're called to be loving. We're marked by a love that is motivated and empowered by the cross. 
It's not a personality trait, but instead it is a family characteristic that permeates and, and, and passes through every one of us. We're all to be marked by love. We're all to be motivated by the cross. As we walk into this Christmas season uh, where things are more joyful typically and, and more loving, I hope that we can show the real love of Christ, that, that what we do and say and think and act upon is motivated by the cross. As we think uh, to speak to someone in need, we're motivated by the fact that Christ died on the cross. And that drives us to reach out to people, uh, to be his hands and feet, to act as he would act. Give us the courage to do that. Give us the, the focus and discernment to recognize that we need to be your church and acting as your church in the world around us. In your precious and holy name, amen. <laughs> 